Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 201 of Allied Strategies. My name is Tristan. Joining me, as always, is my friend Benjamin. Hello, hello. And my friend Sam. Hello. And joining us this week is special guest John Stern. Hey, everyone. Uh, where might people know you from, John Stern, in Magic? Um, I I don't know. They could know me from various event coverage. Um, I'm on Twitter. Yeah. What is that, Benjamin? John Stern is a member of Mass Drop MTG, one of the top eight team series teams. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Exciting, exciting. Um, but this week, we are bringing you on the show to talk actually with us about another shared passion that the four of us have that is not Magic the Gathering. It is sort of related to Magic the Gathering, but this will be the first episode in, in Allied Strategy's 201 episode history where Ma- Magic the Gathering is not our main focus. Uh, we will instead be talking about board games. Uh, and we'll be trying to talk about board games. Uh, well, we'll talk about why we like board games, and we've each kind of picked out some number of board games that we'll talk about how they work and what sorts of people might enjoy them and what their drawbacks are. Uh, and the goal is, you know, if you're a person who enjoys Magic the Gathering, the odds are pretty high that you will enjoy some number of board games, uh, probably some that you haven't played yet. So uh, we'll give you some ideas for ones that you may want to try. Uh, and we're also just kind of going to evangelize the idea of playing board games with your friends, because that's something, at least Ben and I have been doing that recently. We've been, we've been having board game nights, and it's been, uh, you know, delightful. So I, well, I just have a weekly delightful. board game night. Yeah, but you know, you recently also started playing board games with me as well, in addition to the, your weekly board game night, to which I'm not invited. Um, <laughs> That's true. Yeah, feels bad. Um, also, in response to recent Twitter uh, backlash about sideboard guides being available for Twitch subscribers and stuff for various Magic streams uh, and Patreon patrons, uh, we are happy to announce our new Patreon structure. For our good friends of the podcast, we are now going to make it so you can request a sideboard guide for one matchup per month but it will be answered by a random podcast host. Whereas for our illustrious friends, uh, that same benefit will be available, but it will be guaranteed that it will be answered by Ben or Sam instead. Uh, So dramatic upgrade for the extra value or for the extra price of that uh, Patreon subscription there. So keep that in mind. Um, So do we have a tier that's even higher where only I answer it? (laughs) Whoa, whoa. Even higher. Hang on. Let me just go back over to mtgeloproject.com. Yeah. uh, Run the numbers again. That's right. Um, just in case anybody... That, that was a joke. So we're not actually providing that service. We don't want to do any false advertising here. <laughs> Wait, we're, we're not? We're not tracking so quickly. I just... I don't I don't want to bait somebody into... You know, like, anytime you make a joke, somebody's not going to hear it's a joke. I don't know. I just want to be Wait, careful. which part's a joke? That only Sam will do it? Or, mm-hmm. or that you're... Yes, correct. Okay, yeah. so you're still doing cyborg guides. Mm-hmm. Look, Tristan, it doesn't have to be a joke. We made no guarantee as to the quality of the sideboard guide. Tristan will write the sideboard guide. Someone has to sign off on it. No, 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 no. What have I gotten myself into? It'll um, be fine. Just just submit the request. It'll get answered. Everyone will have a good time. It'll be great. <laughs> All right. Um, so speaking of our friends over on Patreon, our illustrious friends, Matt, Brett, Kiki, Jiki, and Winchester are... Uh, the most illustrious of those patrons. But also, we'd like to thank our good friends of the podcast, Adam, Matt, Britton, Kyle, Caroline, Eric, Zach, Sam, Duncan, Baptiste, Ari, Wilson, Tobias, Paul, and Will. Thanks so much for your continued support. It's probably Baptiste, not Baptiste, I'm guessing. I, Whoa, I, John, stop trying to mess up the cadence. Oh, okay, that, sorry. Oh, wait. Uh, well, if it's like a French name, I'd say it's Baptiste, but uh, who knows, maybe not. There's a P in the name, though. Yeah, it's probably silent. 
Why would they, they, they would... You can do that? That's allowed? Yeah, yeah, you can do whatever you want. Do they not realize it would just be faster then to just write, just omit the letter entirely? Think of how much time you'd save in a lifetime if you just omitted all the silent letters. I mean, words. Zach has a C and a K. It's like redundant, well, yeah. right? No, you just pronounce one T's. of them at random. Yeah. I like that. Each letter feels like it's par- participating half the time. Exactly. Yeah, they're they're each working towards the same goal and only having to do half the work. It's it's nice. Okay. Okay. Uh, but yeah, you may be right. I'll 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 look into it. I'll I'll do some Google Translate pronunciation button pressing and and uh. Yeah. Baptiste or Baptiste. Um, I deeply apologize if I've been mispronouncing your name. God, I hope you have. Well, in my defense, Ben, you did it one week as well, and you also pronounced it that way, so uh, you will have as well. Yeah, but that's fine. You did it more times. Okay. Uh, Speaking of something that we do more times, Card of the Week is another segment we do every week on our show, uh, despite my best efforts. Sam, what is your Card of the Week? My Card of the Week this week is Twiddle. It costs a single blue mana, and it says... Uh, tap or untap target permanent and twiddle is notable to me because it was printed in alpha beta unlimited then for some reason oh sorry it only hits artifact creatures or land you can't actually target enchantments or planeswalkers um but then for some reason they decided to not print twiddle in revised and then they came back to it for fourth and fifth edition which feels really weird to me because it's so innocuous like who who actually cares if they if they printed twiddle or not you know kind of seems on brand though right why well just it it twiddles in and out of the sets it's like very flavorful you know i guess maybe it was a color pie violation or something maybe specifically one set and then they did they've they've changed their philosophy since then Mm -hmm. but anyway twiddle's great Matt was playing it, uh, you know, this last, uh, in the Super League. It was a lot of fun. He was playing Twiddle Storm using Lotus Field, and that was a, a pretty cool deck. So that's what I got about Twiddle. Yeah, it's, it's pretty clear you can't do anything fair with Twiddle. Yeah. Well, you were supposed to tap one of their creatures. Originally, the, the like, thing for Twiddle was going to be that it, uh, it was a combo with... Um, time, time Vault? Time Vault, yeah. And then for a while, Time Vault had a Rata, so it didn't work with Time Vault, but then they've they fixed that, so now it does again. John, what is your card of the week? Uh, I also went pretty far back. I'm going to pick uh, Standstill as my card of the week. Ben, what is your card? <laughs> Trigger! <laughs> yeah, I was waiting to draw three. All right, sweet. <clears throat> that's just my favorite card from like back in the day. Um, Don't my try first to favorite stifle card. a Standstill Trigger. Yeah, fact. Very true. Your favorite card from back in the day, though? That's awesome. Yeah, no, I love I love playing Standstill, or my opponent plays Standstill, and you're in sort of this like mini battle of deciding who's going to break it and figuring out when to break it. It was always fun to play with. Yeah, it does, it's a card that does a really good job of like embodying the flavor of it. Like The, the gameplay embodies the, the flavor of the, the card, right? Yeah, I used to win a lot of games. Like I guess this was... Was it Invasion Block? Was, was that when it was printed? Uh, it anyway, was printed it was... Uh, Odyssey. Odyssey. Um... You would win a lot of games with the control deck when you just went turn two standstill and your opponent would be afraid to break it and you just have enough time to develop your mana base um, where really they should just break it right away because you would draw those three cards anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's cool. Benjamin, what is your card of the week? My card of the week is Ransack the Lab. It's a sorcery uh, for a black and one. Look at the top three cards of your library, put one of them into your hand and put the rest into your graveyard. 
This is like a little innocuous common from Modern Horizons 1. Um, but I think it's like a real workhorse in the limited format. It's sort of like not an obviously powerful card, and it like tends to wheel a lot. But I think the card is quite quite good um, in the format. It just enables a lot of stuff uh, that the black deck, the grindy black decks are trying to do. So stuff like uh, Return from Extinction as Double Raise Dead or um, Phyrexian First Fear Gargantua. You can uh, put that in your graveyard and then unearth it. And then it also just it has some like um, cross color synergies with like Igneous Elemental and uh, Anurid, uh, Excavating Anurid and stuff like that. So I think it's just a, a pretty good common. And I think um, you know when I was practicing uh, Modern Horizons drafts, it was it was going around the table a little little too much. I think so. So look to this one if you're going to play uh, GP Vegas. I got destroyed by this card at the Pro Tour. My opponent cast two and then played a Hogak on turn four or something. Wow, Hogak on turn four. That's really impressive. It was very impressive in the limited format. Yeah, it's a lot better in limited. Less, less so <laughs> for Constructed. Although it's still something that does win games of Constructed Magic um, from time to time. Yeah, I mean, you know, you could do a lot worse than a turn four Hogak. Yeah. Um, speaking of things you can do on turn four, my card of the week is Marisi, Breaker of the Coils. This is a spoiler from the upcoming Commander set. It's one, a red, a green, and a white. For a 5-4 legendary cat warrior, it says your opponents can't cast spells during combat. And then whenever a creature you control deals combat damage to a player, goad each creature that player controls. Until your next turn, those creatures attack each combat if able, and attack a player other than you if able. Um, so I, I've selected this card. You know, this is a powerful card, an exciting card, but I, I'm, I'm a little bit confused about the flavor here. So I was wondering if you guys could help me understand how... You know, when I deal damage to you and I goad you, how that causes you to attack somebody else. If it, it feels like goading is pretty similar to prov- provoking, you know, kind of it, it should cause you to want to attack me. So I, I, I know Ben and Sam, you guys are accomplished flavor judges, and John, you you maybe as well. I'm, I'm not familiar with your flavor judge certifications, um, but I was wondering if anybody could, could help explain to me how goading works in this yeah. context. Well, here it's clear that Marisi, she. I actually the the character is you know breaking the chain like the the coil of oppression like the chain so like your creatures that ah. you know you have dominion over um Marisi is freeing them from you uh and directing their anger you know towards others um and you've lost control of your of your former pawns and you know they're also all fans of Marisi since uh you right. know that makes sense. It, it seems to me like though the the most flavorful way then would be for them to attack their controller, right? Like that would be the way that a an uprising of that sort. Yeah, would but happen, like maybe right? maybe it's in like the terms of their magical contract or something that they can't damage their owner, but they can damage others. So okay. maybe well, and they don't want to control. attack the person who set them free. Of course, yeah. yeah so yeah, that, yeah, that doesn't make sense. I, that, that's what I'm understanding. I, I understand now why they can't attack the controller of Marisi, but. It's still strange to me that they then attack somebody else um, after being, you know, freed from their slavery. That's that, that that's just a mystery. If if any listener has an idea of, of what's going on here, feel free to let me know. Um, cool card though, nonetheless, and I, I believe this is the first time we're seeing the keyword goad. So maybe, maybe it's uh, goading. Maybe it's goading like uh, like scapegoating. So you have to find ah. someone to blame for your problems. Yes. Okay. Maybe they mistyped goat by accident. Is supposed to be the word that went in there, yeah. 
Goad is a keyword action introduced in Conspiracy okay. to the Crown okay. that forces creatures to attack, preferably someone other than you. It was designed for multiplayer play. Interesting, yeah. Oh, and if you're the only person, they will attack you. Interesting. Okay. Um, cool. That's been our card of the week. Let's talk about our main topic this week, which is board games, which we're using board games to describe. There are a number of games on this list that don't actually come with a board, per se, um, but really just kind of any non-magic game that comes in a box um, and that you play with pieces that are in that box. Uh, so the first one on this list here is Hanabi, which John Stern, I, bl- I believe, is one of the games for which you are most famous uh, outside of Magic, uh, particularly within the Magic player circle. This is a game that is very frequently associated with you. You're, you're the person who taught me this game uh, and taught many of my friends this game, and we've played it a lot together, and it's been a blast. So uh, what is what is Hanabi? What What is the Han- game? Hanabi... Um... Yeah, Hanabi is a, a card game. It's a cooperative game. Uh, you can play uh, with two to five players. Basically, uh, you're trying to make solid... There's like five four, five or six colors, depending on which version you play. And you're trying to make solitaire piles like one through five of each color. Uh, but you can't see your own hand. Uh, but you can see everyone else's hand. So on your turn, you can either play a card or discard a card or give a clue to one of the other players. Uh, and the clues can be either number clues, like you can say these are all your twos, or they can be color clues. These are all your blue cards, and they have to interpret that clue and why you gave it and decide what to do on their turn, and together you're trying to assemble piles from one to five of every color. Yeah, so this game has a lot of positive characteristics. Um, unlike many cooperative games, this is a game where it's it's truly multiplayer. Like There are a lot of cooperative games that could functionally be played just by one person, uh, and there's kind of just multiple people... Uh, at the helm with their like own separate characters, but you could just have one person just telling everybody what to do, and a lot of other cooperative games kind of devolve into that. But this game with the hidden information element, uh, where you don't know your own hand, it, it makes it so that everybody actually has to play, uh, and you can't get help from your friends regarding what your move is because they have information that you don't, and you have information that they don't. So uh, yeah, what cool I what I what it. I like about it is that no matter how good of a player you are, you don't have enough information to know what everybody's best play should be but by the same token if you can figure out what their best play might be you can sort of determine from context oh they chose to give that clue over that clue maybe that means you know i have this card um there's a lot of opportunities to play like that into combo plays uh through other players um so yeah i find it's a lot of fun it's yeah it's i spend more time playing hanabi than any other game including magic so you get these you get these opportunities to like clue a third party and you know rely on that telling a second party what their hand is supposed to like what what their hand contains yeah stuff Um, like that one problem i found with this game is that there's sort of a a a problem of conventions building up where like within a play group it will kind of become known that like okay this means one thing like this sort of clue has a certain accepted meaning because it's happened in previous games uh and you've kind of all talked about it and it's you you kind of develop a metagame within within your play group uh and that can become a problem then when somebody when you play with other people who've played the game but in different groups um there can be some tension there um yeah like there's a, that as well yeah well there's a there's sort of it's tough to draw the line between what is a convention that's like an established way to play versus what is a correct play if you just think about the game a lot um, yeah just like derive first principles so like most well, conventions that's... that's dangerous because i think the optimal way to play the game is not like human comprehensible in like right yeah there's in, some computer nonsense that like somebody wrote a big paper that only ben can understand about how hanabi works or whatever 
that is um, that's not clear to me. Like I have read stuff like that, and uh, basically, I think uh, sort of some sort of things called a hat method or whatever, where yeah. you give pinpoint clues can get you a very high score on a reliable basis, but. Uh, it's not clear that that's actually better than optimal intuitive play, but because there's no way really to have measured that because we don't know what optimal play is. Um, it, it sounds like you're more well read on this subject, so I'll concede the point. Nice, that's one zero. All right, <laughs> we can move on to the next game <laughs> then. <laughs> All right, so, so Hanabi won by John Sturt. Uh I just want to quickly ask Sam. Sam, have you gotten to play Hanabi? Do you have a, opinions on the, on this particular board game? Yeah, I've played Hanabi a good amount. I think it's really fun, and one of the things I like the best about it is, um, like, I think John gave a relatively complete accounting of the rules just now in a very short amount of time. Um, and I, I like that it is simple enough that, you know, it's pretty easy to just pick up and play, but there's enough depth to it that, obviously, like, John has spent a ton of time playing it and still has fun playing it, and it has enough depth that you can do that. I will say the one thing that is that can be frustrating with this game is um, if you're playing with a new player and you don't want to start off by like you can give a, an exa- like I can describe the rules, but if I don't give you all these conventions that I'm going to play with, um, the game can be very frustrating where players are like not on the same wavelength at all, especially in a large group where there's like four regulars and like one new player. Um, yeah, I remember I remember playing a game with you where you like clued somebody and then you kind of looked at me and you were like. Um... What do you think that means? And I, you know, had to think for a while about what it might have meant. Uh, and that, you know, yeah. it was a, an interesting experience for sure. Kind of being thrown wanna, in the deep end there. I want to say one last thing about Hanabi also, in that, like, sometimes people can get, can get scared when there are all these, like, external rules that other people make up that you're supposed to follow, like all these conventions that we talk about. But I think one really cool and interesting thing about Hanabi is that the conventions will frequently sort of get thrown at, like, it just comes up a lot where you're like, okay, normally I would do this, but I think in this specific spot, they might interpret it to mean something slightly different because of, like, these cards that are showing. So I I have to, like, you have to modify what you're going to do, like, a little bit every single game, and it's always in different ways every single game. So I find that really interesting. It's sort of like magic where, like, you know, when you play a deck, most of the games play out in a similar way, but the little details are all a little bit different, and that makes the game really replayable. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think like when you play Hanabi on a on kind of a high level, like figuring out what's optimal is one thing, but actually doing what's optimal is like also difficult. Um, so yeah, that comes up a lot where your decisions matter a lot, and it's not obvious what the correct play is. Yeah, so Hanabi, a game that takes a pretty short amount of time to actually play a round of is a nice thing as well. It's relatively easy to play it within between rounds of Magic tournaments, and uh, the order that we've picked these games has gone in order of shortest gameplay time to longest. Um, so Hanabi, a, a really a, actually a great one for Magic players in general. Another upside of this is you can proxy it on Magic cards if you forget your, your box of Hanabi at home. Uh, you can just get a Sharpie and write some numbers on some basic lands and use some dice to represent the clues, and you're off to the races. So Yeah, it, it's also really cheap, like $10, and it's very portable, so yeah, just cer- a bunch of cards. Certainly a game we'd, we'd recommend purchasing if you're going to play, of course. Um, you support the, the creators of it. All right, Sam, uh, you are the, the proud sponsor of the next game on the list here, Biblios. What is uh, the deal with this game? So this is another game that I, I believe can be played uh, in, in between rounds at Magic tournaments pretty easily. Um, this is a auction game, I guess is how I would describe it. Uh, the general structure is that 
there's a first round where each player has the opportunity to look at a number of cards equal to the number of players in the game plus one. And then they choose some to give to themselves, uh, some to give to the other players in the game, and then one to go into an auction pile. After you finish doing that, after you finish distributing all, all of those cards, you then shuffle up the auction pile and have an auction for the, each of the cards in the pile. So the thing I like about this game is, one, it's pretty simple and pretty fast to play. And two, it does a good job of uh, rewarding you for remembering, you know, which cards you put in the auction pile and also which cards you've given to other players. Um, I think it's like a fun short game where you get some nice, like some nice tense auctions where you're competing to uh, fill out the, the, the ultimate goal is to get the most points in certain colors and you're like competing to, to do that. Um, so, you know, there's some nice tense moments where you're both bidding for the card that will, that you think will win you the color, but in reality you lost the color you know, 10 minutes ago when they, when they got the two or whatever. Um, so I, I really like that tension that builds over the course of the game. And I think it's really fun. Cool. I, I have not the opportunity funny. to play this one. Yes. It's uh, Ben of you. I have played it and it's actually funny because the exact things that you say are reasons you like the game are reasons I dislike the game. Like I just don't, I don't really care about games that test memory or, that sort of thing, I don't find that like an interesting skill. So, and I, like I realize that you know different people have different preferences or whatever. But I, I only played Biblios once, but I, I remember I did not like it very much. I think like uh, so I've I've played it also. Um, I th I think the memory aspect is not played up as much. Like it, you don't have to memorize everything that's happened. Um, you can just sort of you really like. There's a lot of like mini mini auctions that like have these like feel good or feel bad moments that last like one second. Oh, like that, that's last card flipped. That's really good for me. Or, oh, I lost the brown three. Maybe I need to reevaluate. Um, and it plays pretty quickly. And if you just know which cards are in the deck, you kind of just have an idea of like, oh, this, this color is probably, I'm probably going to win this color. You don't really have to know. I mean, it's more of like a casual game, I, I think, as opposed to something that you like try your absolute best to win every single time. Maybe that's... Uh, yeah. I, I agree with that. I don't think it's a super competitive game. Interesting. I, th I bet that is the tension that Ben has because I think I don't yeah, think I Ben don't, really plays games in casual. I don't understand. Mode. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I, I, I don't I'm know. I'm going to sit down. And... Like, if, if I if I'm if I'm aware that like the optimal way to play a game involves uh, keeping track of all the information that has been presented to me throughout the course of the game, I will have less fun if I don't do that. Um, Cause like a, you, you can sort of pick your battles, though. Like You can be like, okay, red is the important color for me. I'm just going to remember the red, and that will get you like 90% of the way to what you need to know to win the game. Yes, you can try to memorize the rest to get the other 10%. Um, and Very actually, I'm sort of the same way. Like I do try to remember it all, but like it also doesn't really matter most of the time. Interesting. I, I didn't feel that way. I felt like it, it mattered a lot, but I, yeah, I don't know. All right, well, that's Biblios, a game that Sam believes can be done within between Magic Rounds. I've, I've, John, I remember you expressed some uh, disagreement about that possibility, though. Um, uh, no, I do I do think, well, it I mean, depends when you finish your rounds. Sam finishes pretty fast. Mm -hmm. uh, I tend to not. But um, <laughs> it's also like, like, Sam, do you think it's better as a two-player game or better? I think it goes up, does it go up to four? It goes up to four. I, I, I've enjoyed it at all. I think three might be the sweet spot, actually. 
Um, but I think it's actually pretty fun for any number. And I do really that that is actually another aspect that I really like is that it's fun for two people to play. Ah, uh, yeah, because Hanabi, is... that's a drawback I, we didn't get to with Hanabi, but I, I personally find two-person Hanabi to be a lot worse than, like, four. Oh, that's my favorite my version. Number. Two's my favorite. Yeah. Two's your favorite? Interesting. Well, because two is more like an optimization puzzle where you're really thinking about theory, mm-hmm. um, and everything you do matters, whereas four-player, you can kind of do whatever and probably get there. But um, one thing that we should mention about Biblios is, like, this, this the problem with trying to remember everything is depending on how many players you're playing with, you remove a certain number of cards from the deck. So, like, you can try to remember everything, but you still will never get all the information. So mm. that does come up. Anyway, I think it's a pretty good game. Oh, yeah. One other nice thing about it is it's very compact. Like, I, I can fit the whole thing into a deck box and carry around with me. That certainly is upside for the Magic players uh, among us. All right, John, you are the owner of the next game here, Onitama. What is this game? Uh, so this is also a game that I, I picked up uh, as a as something to do between rounds. Um, a game takes between 15... Uh, it probably takes about 15 minutes. Um, the I would say it's a little less portable because it comes with these nice pieces, but it's basically a, a, a chess variant that's played on a 5x5 five five board where each player has four pawns and a king, and you win the game by capturing the other king or getting your king to their home base. Uh, but what's different is how the pieces move. Uh, there's a whole bunch of move cards... Um, so at the start of the game, you randomize. Each player gets two move cards, and then there's one neutral one. So there's five different ways pieces can move. And on your turn, you play one of your move cards, move a piece, any of your pieces, king or pawn, using the diagram of legal moves for that move. And then you trade that move card to the neutral area and take the neutral area for yourself. So basically, if you use a move, your opponent will then have access to that move. So because there's like 15 different moves in the game and there's expansions or whatever, every game kind of plays out differently. So unlike chess, where you need to study a lot to really even be on par with like a good player, uh, Onitama uses a lot of the same um, abstract concepts as chess, but every game is kind of fresh, and you have to figure out the theory on your own. And because it's 5x5, five five, it's a little more manageable. Um, but yeah, I've had a lot of fun playing it. Uh, it's two-player only. Um, but yeah, it's a short game. I, like, I really like short games that you can just pull out and you know play a quick game and still get like a, a good play experience out of yeah, this seems like a good way to infuse some of the benefits that come with randomness to chess, a game that you know historically has none of that, uh, while keeping a lot of the the tactical, you know, get great gameplay that sometimes gets lost when too much randomness gets added to a game. Yeah, well, the randomness is basically only the starting position. Once you have the starting position, mm-hmm. like I, I think, I think if you there. played Onitama with certain starting cards, every starting move cards every time, it would be solvable very easily by a computer or whatever. But um, the fact that there isn't this, you know, backlog of theory uh, keeps it kind of fresh and interesting. And and a lot of the same concepts of chess, which I've I've been getting into a little bit lately in terms of like trying to force your opponent into a situation where they have no good moves, for example, does come up a lot. And the fact that certain move cards, like if you get a, a hand with like, it's very difficult for any player to move left, for example, then positioning your pieces to take advantage of that fact is kind of is 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 an interesting part of the game. Uh, Banner, Sam, have either of you gotten to play Onitama? I haven't I, played it. I've watched John play it a fair amount, and it looks fun. Better. I have I have not played it. I sort of notoriously dislike chess, but actually, this chess variant that John is describing sounds fun to me. 
because there are like specific things about chess that I that I don't really like. Like the the perfect. Inf- so wait, John, when you start the game, do you know all the cards in your opponent's hand? Yes, you know their two cards, your two cards, and the neutral card. Mm. So there's no random element beyond the starting position. It's perfect information from that point on. Okay. So there, there, sure. there can be a problem of like, if you sit there for 15 minutes doing nothing on turn one to try to figure out exactly how the game's going to play out, then it would be a lot less fun. That might be that might be something that like if that's your tendency to want to like basically what usually happens is you start making moves and then as you're making moves you're like oh that strategy is going to be important I'm going to try to do that yeah or I'm going to try to preserve this card but yes you can have some analysis paralysis at the beginning if you're playing with a group that you know tends to do that I mean that's not really my worry my I just just in general games sort of the I like games of deduction and risk taking. A lot, um, of which mostly those get derived from imperfect information. Um, but yeah, yeah, there's I'm there's no saying... probabilistic element to this game, right? Which yeah, is... I, I certainly would be. It, it, it sounds interesting enough, like to sort of have the value of a piece vary based on like what cards are in your hand. I think could be definitely interesting and, and bring some freshness. So I think it could be fun to try. Cool. All right, Benjamin, you are the owner of the next game on the list here, Seven Wonders Duel, which is related to Seven Wonders of the World, which is a different game. So what's Seven Wonders Duel? So Seven Wonders Duel is a a two-player game that was sort of based on the original um, Seven Wonders game. It is a a drafting game um, where there are are three rounds, and in every round, uh, the cards are sort of laid out in a pattern, uh, sort of like a Rochester draft. So where like all the cards are laid out and you take turns picking cards, but some of the cards um, are unavailable because there are cards covering them, and they become available after you draft after you or your opponent drafts all of the cards that are covering them, and also some of them are face down, um, and those face down cards are then turned face up and revealed to all players after the cards covering them are removed. Um, so there's some of that imperfect information that I was talking about earlier. Uh, and in this game, like the cards that you draft sort of, um, some of them are like resource cards. Um, some of them, you know, enable you just, some of them just give you victory points. Some of them like give you power on like this other axis. Um, some of them like attack your opponent and sort of like you're, you, you draft them. And as you draft them, you are able to build more and more each card like has a cost uh, and you're able to draft more and more complicated cards as you draft the the earlier ones as the the rounds go on and one thing I really like about this game is actually I think it plays out really well in two player I think one like it is only a two player game but there are a lot of two player games that I don't really like because a two player game is like inherently zero sum like either you win or your opponent wins um, so moves that cripple your opponent are exactly as good as moves that, uh, are good for you. And so there are some games where, like, the, the best way to play the game is to sort of make it so that your opponent can't play the game, and that is not very fun. Um, and there's a little bit of that in Seven Wonders. If your opponent is really just horrifically unlucky or playing very badly, they might reach the point where they don't really get to play the game anymore, and by that point you've won. But I think in most games, the game has a has good stop gaps of like allowing you like breathing room if your opponent is trying to mess with you. Um, 
that make it so that the the game doesn't play out like that in most in the vast majority of games. So like you are even though you are trying actively trying to screw over your opponent, they're still they're still able to like sort of play around that and sort of pursue maybe orthogonal strategies or or um draft insurance cards against you being able to screw them and stuff like that. Yeah, there are kind of multiple paths to victory. Like, there are a couple ways to just win instantly, and it's, if your opponent is, like, making a strong push towards one of those, it's usually something that you can interact with, uh, and you can usually force the game to end in the usual way of counting up victory points. Uh, yeah, I think I think you can get some really cool sweats or some, like, very tense moments, as Sam described earlier, um, where, you know, you, you're going to lose if your opponent gets one more attack card. And there's some like face down cards that you have to reveal because you have to pick a card from the board. So you're like, oh man, like if there's an attack card down here, I'm gonna lose. Um, but you know, like so that makes for a very exciting moment. But for the game to have gotten to that point anyway in the first place, you sort of had to be ignoring this attack axis of the game. So like your 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 opponent is getting rewarded for their play. It's not just totally random or whatever. And so I don't know. I really like that. Yeah, um, the game also has you, the, this element of constructing your wonders, um, where that gives you a limited amount of opportunities to like make two plays in one turn. Uh, some of them do, and that is like rationing out those double play opportunities uh, can let you do some really powerful things and get access to two cards in one turn, which lets you you know both reveal and then take take that card in the same turn potentially, or if there's yeah. an important card that is covered. Uh, that you normally, of course, if you just take turns going 1-1, one, one, then you'll see who would get access to that card first. But uh, by using one of your, like, play twice in one turn abilities, you will you might be able to flip that on its head, uh, which yeah, is Yeah, cool. I, think, I think that mechanic is actually really, really important for the game. Like, mm-hmm. to give the players a limited number of opportunities to have, a, like, a little bit more control over what cards they get is really important, um, just so that you can play around your opponent killing you instant, like instantly and stuff like that and like get, if there is a card that is really important for you to get you can play in such a way that it, you will be able to get it ben and uh john have either of you gotten to play seven wonders duel do you have opinions about this one yeah um, i've played a ton of it and I, I think it's really really good um i agree with pretty much everything ben said and i i really like uh two-player games where it feels like there's not like, like exactly what ben said where both players are sort of enacting a game plan, but there's still some amount of counter, like countermanding what the other person is doing. And I think this game does a really good job of balancing those things and also being uh, quick enough that it doesn't ever feel like even in an inevitable game, it is painful to play it out. You know, even if you feel like you're getting totally destroyed, it, it doesn't take that long to actually play and feel like you, you know, you should just give up now, um, which is something that I think can come up and be problematic sometimes in other games. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've, play, I, I've played it, uh, well, I've played it about 10 to 15 times. Most of them were with Sam. Um, uh, the thing, I, I do think it's a very fun game. I picked it up. I, 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 I do like the game. Uh, but I'm kind of apprehensive about it because there were a lot of games that I've played where one player just walked away with the victory. Um, like, the other player had virtually no agency in stopping that, even though there are things you can do to try to stop different paths to victory. Overall, if someone gets a resource edge early on, it's almost 
a done deal. Um, and unlike a game, well, like Magic or something, where like you can look at decision points, like, oh, maybe I should have done that or whatever, you can you can make like what feel like optimal plays over the first few turns and just end up really far behind if like the cards flipped in a certain way. Um, and yes, it's a short game, so like I don't know. And then, I don't know. It might be too small a sample size to really know if that's if the game is unbalanced. Uh, but my feeling is that there's a decent percentage of games where you just don't have agency over who's going to win the game. Um, so that's my concern. It's really fun. Um, so yeah, I'd still just play it and not really worry about that too much. Yeah, the, I think you're absolutely right that the the main cause of that of getting blown out that way is um, resource disadvantage. Like if, if if one person just gets a bunch of the resource constructing cards and the other person doesn't have those, it's a it's a huge deficit to try and overcome. Yeah, I, I think there are things you can do and sort of strategies you can learn to help overcome that a little bit, I guess. And that's that's I think part of the fun of the game is you definitely can just lose from it, but I think there are occasionally boards where you can you know figure out clever ways to get around it. Yeah, I gotta say that that's not my experience at all, really. I mean, I played a game recently where I was ahead in victory points by, like, a massive amount, and I had no brown buildings at all. Um, so, like, brown buildings are the ones that give you resources. Um, but, yeah, I, I recognize that that can happen if someone is is playing badly, I guess. But Well, I felt like it's happened, like, in the games, Sam, I don't know how well you remember the games you played, but, like, I think we ended up like four, three, and seven games, but like I would say in three or four of those games, one person was clearly dominant and it didn't feel like the other person had played badly. It just felt like they just didn't have opportunity to make good plays. Um, but the other three games or whatever were like really close and very interesting. So, like, I don't know, maybe it, that was just a few weird games, but that's. Well, I, no, I, I, think, I think you're right. I think it is not that someone plays badly, I think it's that they didn't like solve the thing they could do to get out of the bad spot that they had gotten into. Like it's not, it's more that I think it takes exceptional play when you get unlucky in those spots than that. If you play, even if you play and even if you play optimally, you can get into those spots. Ah, so yeah. there are like boards that, that can sense. be offered to you where the only path to victory involves taking like a, a, a strategy that is non-standard. Like, not yeah, like going maybe for maybe buildings. going for all the blue cards and not worrying about resources is a way to come back. That that's possible. I just my feeling, my gut feeling is that that will not work most of the time. But I I've not played enough to solve it or anything. So like maybe it will work. It's definitely worth worth playing though. Yeah, either way, we all agree it's just a, a fun game. Uh, yeah, and yeah. All right, next game oh. is mine. It is Puerto Rico. Uh, Puerto Rico, the only game on this list that I've... I guess Hanabi's a game that I've played a lot on this list, but otherwise I've mostly played most of the games on this list zero to one time, except for Puerto Rico, which i played uh, more times than that, a couple times. Not not double digits amounts of times, but high single digits at this point, I think. Uh, so Puerto Rico is a pretty cool game where the core gameplay loop is um, you select these roles, and whenever you select a role for the round, everybody on, at the table selects a role, and so like if I select the role that gives everybody colonists... I get extra colonists, and then everybody gets some colonists. If I select the role of um, building buildings, I get to build a building for cheap, and everybody else gets to build a building for normal. Uh, if I select the role of like selling goods, uh, then I get extra money from selling goods, but everybody gets the opportunity to sell goods. Uh, and you kind of go around like posi- the ordering of the game matters as well. Um, there's a lot of like thinking. All right, which which role am I going to pick? 
which role is this person going to pick? Uh, if this person picks this role, like how good is that for me versus how bad is that for me? When you're looking at the roles pick, you're like, okay, you know, I would like to pick this, but that is too beneficial to my, my enemies. Or maybe I would like this role to happen, but uh, it doesn't matter too much whether or not I get the bonus of actually being the person who selects that role. So uh, maybe I will not pick that and instead let somebody else pick that because I don't care too much about that bonus. Uh, so that's, that's the, those are the things that I like about Puerto Rico. Um, I, yeah. Have you guys? What, what do you guys think about this game? Yeah, uh, I've, go ahead, Ben. I've, I've played it a fair amount. I like it well enough. I think the 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 core mechanic you mentioned is an interesting one. It, it doesn't really pop up in a lot of games that I find um, because I think it, it's hot, like you know it is hard to figure out the impact that your actions will have on other people's let like you. You have to figure out not only how good an action is for you, but you have to figure out the differential of how good it is for you versus how good it is for other people. And also, like, the opportunity cost of if they just take it later, like, how good is it for the differential there, too. So it is, like, pretty complicated to decide how you're going to act. Um, And that is fun, I think, uh, for a little... for a while. But eventually, it's sort of, like, wears on you. And also, there's there's very little randomness in the game, um, so there, there's actually very little like replay. Val- there's it's not even just just randomness. There's very little variance in the game itself. Like if you play five games of Puerto Rico, most of them are going to play out yeah, pretty much the same. Th- there are like a couple of different strategies offered by the game um, of like, like do you want to do you want to be a trader? Do you want to be a, a good shipper? Or do you want to be like a building builder and get your victory points from those? But generally, most people end up kind of hybridizing anyways. Like, they'll have one victory point building and then have shipped some goods. Um, and that like that that hybrid strategy is, is the most common. Uh, you rarely see somebody kind of hardcore commit on, like, a super specialized engine. that Because the problem with that is that then there are roles that benefit you not at all. And every time everybody else selects those, you, you lose out. Um, I, th- I think like the role selection mechanism was incredibly innovative when they came out with the game. It's like a, it's an old game, right? It's been out twenty years, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and but I so I th- if I remember, and it's been a while since I played it, the only starting the only thing that changes from game to game in the starting position is which four resources are available at the start. Is that yeah? The, the only random element is which resources get flipped up uh, as the available resources to put on your map. Right. So like I. And I had the same experience as Ben, where it's like, yes, the mechanic's cool and it's very interesting, but it feels just like an optimization problem mm-hmm. that you can solve. And yet if you sort of solved it, you could just do that every single game. Um, I think that is a fair criticism of the game, yeah. And and whether or not you, you succeed will be based on whether the table kind of like cooperates in terms of making good decisions for themselves and like if you play with somebody who who isn't as experienced and they make a bad decision, that kind of can create a king-making scenario as well. Yes, king, um, I think king-making is absolutely a huge problem in this game where there are a lot of times where two people are close to winning and one person, you know, depending on which role they pick, that changes who wins. Um, but it's not going to change whether or not they win. Like, they're going to lose either way. Um, but at the same time, so, like, I, I played it a long time ago a bunch of times and then I haven't played it for years and now just talking about it kind of makes me want to just play it again because i don't remember any of the strategies <laughs> and i just like i like the role picking mechanism it's very neat yeah i like that too that's my favorite part it's i i i enjoy that core gameplay loop enough to get past those other drawbacks of the game but i don't dispute that there are drawbacks of it 
Yeah, I also have played this game, I think, maybe like two or three times. So I didn't hit the point of feeling like, oh, yeah, you know, I've played all the strategies. I know how it all goes. Um, and I, I thought it was pretty great the, the the couple of times that I played it. Um, so, uh, you know, I maybe that's a drawback. But also, there aren't that many games that I play, you know, hundreds of times. So it's not that big a deal to me if this is one that I also don't play hundreds of times. Yeah, I think fun the first four or five times is a, is a good thing for a game to have and doesn't need to be fun the 20th time although that is something that is true of a lot of games on this list like Hanabi so that that is an upside for a game this is an, an issue though that comes up with me a lot in board games where if you're if you've played the game a lot playing with someone who hasn't played a lot just is no longer fun mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and yeah. I feel that that happens with Puerto Rico just because it's been around for so long and so many people have played it that you can sit down at a table and this, someone might have played the game 300 times it's like yeah I'm doing corn shipping strategy I'm just going to crush you all with corn Mm-hmm. And then the game's just kind of over if you're like, oh, maybe I'll take this for fun or try that. You just can't compete because right off the bat, they've got a lead. Um, I feel you with that, John. But also, I think that's just a generic problem with games. Like, wh- as you play games, you get better at them. And, you know, when you're better than people, you tend to win. So. Yeah, I guess maybe that's this is what I'm describing is more a problem with just any game that's been around for so long is that when you sit down at a table, you aren't just going to be learning it from scratch and have that same experience. You're going to be like, someone will be an expert. I've mm-hmm. never played a game where of Puerto Rico where somebody wasn't an expert. So I haven't had that clean experience, I guess. Yeah, I think that, that's fair. All right, John, your next game is Quacks of Quedlinburg. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. What, what's the deal with this game? Um, so one thing, um, as I've been getting more into board games lately, um, one thing that's come up a lot is like, okay, we're a group of people, we're at a board game cafe, and someone's like, what should we try? And we're looking for a game that nobody's played that we're going to learn quickly and play a quick game of. And so this game I've played one time. Uh, it was a very good experience. Um, it can be played in about 45 minutes. And the rules are simple. Basically, you are... Uh, uh, you're like doctors, like not like quacks, basically. You're not real doctors, but you're trying to pretend you're a doctor, and you're trying to build this like brew that is going to s- sort of heal your patient or whatever. And it's kind of an engine building game that's also a push your luck game. So you're buying ingredients for your potion, putting it in your cauldron, and it's your your bag, and you pull out ingredients one by one uh, and add them to your your cauldron. But if you get too many cherry bombs in your cauldron, it sort of blows up and you miss the rest of your turn. Um, But you want to get as much stuff into your cauldron because that will give you points to buy a new ingredient for your, for your, for your bag. So basically you're like trying to get as far as you can on this like point track each turn so that you can buy more ingredients, but being careful not to blow up because then you get less resources for the following turn. Um, And it's just really kind of fast paced. Everyone has their own cauldron. So everyone is sort of like, pulling out a, uh, an ingredient at the same time. Um, but then certain ingredients have different powers that let you affect what other people are doing or give you bonuses. And yeah, it's just a, a quick, fun game that you can you can pull out at a board game cafe, no one's played it, and have a good gaming experience in 45 minutes, basically. Awesome, yeah. Uh, I've, I've not played this. I, I, ben or Sam, have either of you? No, nope, never even heard of it. Cool, so next time, next time <laughs> we have the opportunity, we'll, uh, we'll give that one a go. It's, it's it's really important to me to have some games on the list that like 
are really easy to learn from scratch when no one's played it. Mm-hmm. Uh, because like even if a game is great, if, if someone has to sit there with the rule book for like two hours before you can play, um, that's going to kind of detract from the entire experience. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that, that can happen when you're buying games, particularly like when you're buying games based on things you've heard about on a podcast, you might get in that spot where you're playing and nobody has played it before. Yeah, so this is a good game for like, oh, you're like hanging out after, you know, Saturday night after day one of a GP and you're like, okay, let's play a game that's going to take about an hour, but I don't want to get too invested. And I don't want to learn rules for two hours. You can just pull this out and play a quick game. It's fun. All right, Sam, Clank is the next game on the list and it is your game in many ways, I understand. What is the deal with this game? Um, so Clank is a game that I have worked on a fair bit at work. Um, I also happen to think it's very, very fun. The, I guess, broad strokes is it is a deck builder. Um, So, you know, like Ascension, Dominion, that kind of game where you start with a deck of weak starter cards and slowly purchase cards to add to your deck um, to to, to make your deck better and better as the game goes on. Um, But it also has a board associated with it, which is, I think, different than most deck builders. So one of the resources that you will acquire uh, from your cards is movement around this board and i guess the the top level view of the game is like it's the hobbit you are going into a dragon's lair stealing some treasure and then escaping um and i think it's really well done uh some of the (laughs) things i like about it compared to other deck builders are that normally i think you have to be pretty committed to amassing all of one kind of resource in a deck builder. Like in Ascension, it's usually bad to have a mix of cards that fight monsters and cards that buy stuff from the center row. Um, And I think in Clank, it's actually correct to do a mix because of the board. You end up having to, you know, use a small amount of fighting on occasional turns to get through various passageways on the board. Uh, And, you know... Uh, the the cards aren't so expensive that you get super punished for not having exclusively gone into uh, things that let you buy new things. And uh, one other thing with Clank that is coming out soon, not out yet, uh, is a Clank Legacy game, which I've played through the campaign at work. It was it's the most fun game I've played through at at work by a lot. I, I really really like it. Um, I'm very excited for it to come in come out and see what it's really like uh you know in the in the real world so i i super like clank yes i'm aware this what's that yeah it's been it's announced it's okay cool it's it's gonna be really fun yeah so a legacy game being one where you can play it like multiple weeks in a row and it's impacted by what happened in previous weeks the the board game is like permanently changed right yeah you like add stickers to the rule book to create new rules um, in Clank Legacy, one of the things that happens is you sometimes like write on the cards, like you, you you acquire a card and you get to name it, and then then it has that name for the rest of the game. Or maybe you like change the card in some way so that now like instead of just giving one boot, this one gives one boot and one skill. But you could have chosen one boot and one sword. You got you got to customize it a little bit however you wanted. Pretty cool. Uh, all right. Yeah. Ben, we I was just going to talk a little bit about how I how I felt when I played Clank. Um, it felt like a lot of fun. I, I actually typically don't like deck builders like Dominion and, and Ascension um, because it sort of feels like you're just so, sort of sitting there doing your own thing and like not really interacting with your opponents very much. Like in Ascension, maybe you like kill a monster before someone else could kill a monster, but like it's not like they had any control over that. Um, but Clank, like 
I still kind of got that feel, but I felt like that was also just because I was playing my first few games. Like, I felt like I did kind of have to care about, like, what treasures my opponents were going for and, like, what routes they were taking through the cave. But it was just sort of a new game to me, and that was too much to think about. So I, like, didn't spend too much time on it. Um, and I, I really, really like the flavor. I, I, I'm a big sucker for, like, this, this fantasy, like, D&D-type setting. Um, well, and... more, than ju- more than just flavor, like, the mechanic of... So basically you're trying to, like some things that you do in the game when you play a card will produce clank, which is just noise, basically. And that that basically makes it more likely that the dragon is going to wake up and attack you or you'll lose some health or something. So that's, that is a really cool, I think, mechanic to sort of keep the tension in the game where you're getting a powerful card, but like there's, there's a cost to it. And that yeah. really adds to the flavor of the game, I think. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I think that mechanic is, is super nice. Um, it makes for very exciting moments and it's like randomness that you have a degree of control over like you can either produce clank or pass on producing clank at various points in the game so um, I agree with you I really like that is clank like like a shared thing like the whole board has a a, a clank no it's just for you so like every time you produce clank you like put a cube in a in a bag Ah, okay. And then every so often... Um, like a cube of you, your color. Yeah, a cube of your color. And then every so often you like draw some number of cubes from the bag, and then the people whose cubes were drawn take damage equal to the number of cubes that, that were drawn of their color. Interesting. Okay. I think like uh, what you were saying, Ben, about feeling like you're playing solitaire in a deck builder, like the biggest thing for me, so I've played it more than a handful of times, certainly not as much as Sam, um, it does feel like you're doing your own thing, exploring the dungeon, building your own deck. But the thing that you always have to keep an eye on, and you can see very easily. So, so in like Dominion or, or Ascension, you don't really, unless you like really know the game very well, you can't really tell how close your opponents are to winning or how far ahead they are. But in Clank, you can see where their character is, and them getting out of the dungeon and triggering the end of the game is something that is not too difficult to sort of keep an eye on. And that affects your strategy and your decisions in the game, which provides some level of interaction, I think. Mm-hmm. Cool. All right, Benjamin. The next game on this list here, certainly the the farthest from a board game that we have here. Hey, it's a deck builder, sort of. <laughs> not a, this not remotely yeah, this, a deck This builder. is not a board game. It's a board game as much as Hanabi is a board game. It, Hanabi is more of a board game than this. Hanabi comes with little tokens that you use to represent status of stuff. And comes in a box. Bridge, the game that you've selected, is one that can be played with a pack of cards, right? A pack of playing cards. Yeah, but, you know, I mean, you can play Hanabi with a pack of playing cards, too. Yeah, and some dice, and, you know... Well, Bridge has a bunch of accessories. Whatever, this is not important. Okay. Okay. The point is that I I strongly believe that Bridge is one of the greatest games of all time. Um, So, Bridge is a trick-taking game, and um, it's a... Uh, you have a partner in bridge, so it's it's usually played two on two, um, and uh, you know in a trick taking game, each player plays one card, um, and then whoever played the highest card takes the tricks, and the the two teams are competing to take the most tricks. And there's no difference between you and your partner in terms of who takes the trick. It's just you're you're trying to to cooperate between the two of you to take the most tricks from your opponents. Um, but the really cool thing about bridge is that um, the trump suit and the number of tricks you're sort of targeting as the as the number of tricks you're trying to take changes every round. Um, 
And in bridge, there's like an initial phase called the bidding phase where you and your partner are trying to communicate with each other um, in order to figure out how good your hands are in order to estimate how many tricks you are going to be able to take, as well as trying to make sure that the suit you want is Trump. Um, and so it sort of shares a lot with Hanabi in the sense that you are trying to communicate with your partner using only like a restricted set of like of methods by which you can communicate. Um, and so there's a lot of gameplay associated with that that I really like, which is like trying to make deductions. In Hanabi, you're trying to make deductions about your own hand. In Bridge, you're trying to make deductions about your partner's hand and your opponent's hands um, based on the way that they're behaving in the bidding phase. Um, and a lot of just like cool logic um, can come up where, you know, you are like representing your hand at some strength level. Um, but you know, because you can see your own hand, that it's actually like a little bit stronger than that. And then your partner makes actions based on like what you've said about your hand. But then you know that your partner doesn't know that your hand is actually stronger than you've said. So then you can make actions based on that, and then your partner can make deductions from that, and so on and so on and so forth. And sort of this logic chain um, makes this game like really interesting to me. And then also, sort of similar to Hanabi, where there's these rules that generally people like follow, um, and they're sort of generic rules that you usually follow, but every specific game is like a little bit different. So you always have to make these little adjustments. You always have to like change everything a little bit. Uh, like some hands you'll have to like, you know, to, to figure out where you want to go, you'll have to lie like a little bit to your partner, but you want to make sure to lie in a way that you can repair later. Um, and it's just, it's really, really, really cool. Uh, and that's just like the bidding part of the game. And then when you get into the actual play, I actually find the play like the most boring but the play is actually quite difficult as well. Um, and there's a lot of cool things about um, because you and your partner are, it doesn't matter which one of you wins the trick. There's a lot of like ways that you're trying to cooperate in like the cards that you're playing. And also like it can matter. There's this concept called transportation where like maybe you're on the lead, but you'd rather your partner be on the lead. So you have to try to make it so that your partner's on the lead because that makes it easier to like, Maybe you have the ace to the left of the opponent's kings. Like, you're pretty sure that your right-hand opponent has the king, so you need to, like, get to your partner's hand so that you can play and eat the king. And it, it's just, it's really cool. Um, it, there's a lot of strategy. It's very deep. And it's got this, these deductive elements. And also, like, it's a team game that's that's pretty fun. Like, you get to chat with your partner. Like, oh, like, you know, we did this. Like, maybe I, maybe I should have done this. Maybe that would have been better. And your partner can be like, yeah, you're really dumb. You definitely should have. <laughs> or your partner can be like, oh, no, that's okay. Like, that probably wouldn't have worked out anyway. Um, and just having another person to talk about um, your plays with, I think, is really, really, really fun. Yeah, one of the things I, I really like about Bridge is that it's a cooperative game uh, with that's also a competitive game. So, like, you can build a rapport with your partner and play with the same person over and over again develop better and better strategies um, and then you can play against people who are more experienced or less experienced and still get you know feedback and still have an interesting game um, I'm curious though Ben like uh, so one of the the two problems I see with bridge um, one of them is something that you said you didn't like when you were talking think about biblios which is the memorization aspect where um, through the play of the hand it's kind of really important to know exactly what cards been played through the course of the hand and to the point where I think a new player has trouble remembering that stuff. 
Like, do you do you just have you played enough that that's not an issue? And you just remember everything, or do you feel like this game overcomes that obstacle? Yeah, I think that's a fair criticism. Um, I've played enough that it's sort of second nature to me. Um, and also, I think that thirteen tricks is a small enough number that you can replay it back a lot easier. Like it seemed to me in, in Biblios, you like you have to remember what you passed left and what you passed right, um, and like that those decisions like stack up really fast. Um, whereas in Bridge, you usually just have to be like, okay, we played two tricks of clubs, so that's eight. Unless like someone did didn't play a club, so that's only seven, and I've got three, so that's ten. You know, so there's three left. Um. And so it's a lot of stuff like that. I just think it's more manageable in Bridge. Um, you have to remember more or less like how many tricks of each suit have been played, and then also the like which face cards are have been played and which have not. Um, yeah. But but I definitely understand. Uh, I felt it was a, frustrating. I mean, maybe I've played less Bridge. I felt it was the memorization requirement for the play was about equivalent to Biblios, but. I, I suppose, like, if you've played either of them enough, it sort of becomes second nature. I yeah, also find, I, I like... I kind of think they're comparable as well, having played a decent amount of both. Um, you definitely take more actions that benefit... Like, in Bridge, like, the actions you take depend a lot on... So, like, if you're not memorizing that kind of stuff, like, you might just make a really bad play in Bridge that just loses the loses the hand. Uh, whereas in Biblios, it's kind of, like, not that big a deal. Um... But maybe it's maybe it's easier to backtrack. Do you find like the fact that so like the bidding also I have some trouble with like just because I don't I don't play that often. Uh, just remembering all the different conventions. Um, so like when you're saying the decisions are interesting when you deviate from a convention, uh, there's some work you need to do at the beginning to just learn all the conventions, right? Yeah, I mean if you want to get really good at bridge, you have to do that. I just like don't play with very many conventions. <laughs> So okay, you just like, basically... the vast majority of my bidding is is natural. There there's like a very small and you know it gets me into trouble sometimes. Like sometimes I'll be in an auction and I'm being and I'll be like I really want to describe my hand but I have no way of doing it or I don't know how to do it. And then I'll ask my friend who plays like a lot more bridge and he'll be like, "Oh yeah, you know, like people 80 years ago encountered the exact same problem and so they developed this convention to like handle mm-hmm. that." And I'll be like, okay, that's cool. And then I will never remember it and use it. I'll never <laughs> use it after that. Um, what, what is interesting to me is that despite Bridge being around for so long, and I, I find this with Hanabi too, like in Han- like I play Hanabi on this website, Board Game Arena, and there's a convention that's developed on the site, which is basically in a two-player game to always tell your partner about twos right at the start. And I'm convinced that this is a bad convention that lowers your chances of winning. But everybody just does it, and I, I'm wondering, like in Bridge, you know, there's these established conventions, but like, there's no, there's no reason why these have to be the ones you use. Like, you can come up with some sort of uh, different, like, make up some other convention with your partner, and be like, yeah, we're going to play this way, and we think it's better, and th- that might end up being better. Like, there's, it's not like a solved game, right? Yeah, well, you can do that. So, so there's yeah. multiple different systems of conventions that that people play. There's no agreement on about which is the best one. And you can make any convention system with your partner. Like, at bridge tournaments, you actually have to bring a convention card that, like, tells your opponents, like, you know, if we bid this, this is what it means. Like, it's... Because communication in bridge is not supposed to be secret. You're not supposed to, like, um, be passing secret messages to your partner. Your opponents 
are you're you're just supposed to be talking about your hand. So your opponents are privy to all information that you're telling your partner. That's so yeah. Bad. That's actually one of the things that I've that I find the most problematic about bridge. Although it hasn't actually affected me ever because I don't like I'm not that good and I don't play you know at that high of a level. But it feels to me like it is really easy to cheat at bridge. Yeah, I think it is really easy to cheat at bridge, but I also don't play bridge at a, at a competitive level, so I don't care. Yeah. Well, I, I agree with that it, that being a problem at a competitive level, but like, I think it's just as easy to cheat in Team Booster Draft, and people are completely fine with that, right? Sure, yeah. Even, I mean, even the, at the a high level. just stay low enough that it doesn't really matter all that much. Well, the stakes in, in bridge are not necessarily... I mean, I don't know how high they are. Maybe at the top level they're high. But like, if you Team Booster Draft in a GP Finals, that's like reasonable stakes, and like... Nobody, I don't know, it's an issue for me, like, it just, it's so, it would be so easy to cheat. Um, yeah. Like, I don't know, pick up the card with your left hand, have one finger out, cough, like, there's all these ways to signal. Wait, I shouldn't be talking about all these ways to cheat in Magic, but... <laughs> um, it, it, it actually bothers me that Team Booster Draft is a competitive format because of this. Uh, and I don't think people are cheating, I just, I don't like that they could. And I think that's a problem with, with competitive bridge also. Yeah. The the biggest thing that has been a barrier for me to play more bridge is that is learning the conventions. Uh, that always feels like really difficult to just learn, you know, all of these different conventions. And I guess, like Ben said, he plays more naturally. I've I've never really tried that. That sounds kind of fun to me. Um, but I always feel like I'm at a handicap because I you know haven't spent the time to learn. Like I don't remember the name of the, the like the different conventions that help you get to slams and things like that. Is it, yeah. is it like I mean, frowned to upon be, to be honest? Like you just, you just, I think that problem is overblown by a lot. Like I think you maybe need to know like three and then you'll be fine in the vast majority of games. And like a lot of them are just based on logic anyway. It's not like they're like totally insane. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, that's the part I think is fun about it anyway, is sort of deducing like, Oh, well, why would this make sense to have happen? Why would my partner have bid this? What should I bid to tell them, to give mm -hmm. them meaningful information? Mm -hmm. Is it frowned upon to just have like a little note, a cheat sheet of like the conventions? No, like... I, I, I play bridge every week and we have people who do that and that's totally fine. Um, okay. Like, I don't know if, if you went to a club. I mean, well, for one thing, like I said, like when you, when you play tournament bridge, you're literally required to write one down. Yeah, <laughs> so... but I think like that's also like that's exploited. Like, you don't have to really disclose everything, even though you're supposed to. I th but yeah, I think if you're playing at a casual level, like it's a really fun game. I, I think it's not not a good game for serious competition, but I do think it's really fun. Yeah. All right, Sam. The next game on the list is Spirit Island, uh, and it is yours. What is this game? So this is a game that I only played recently. It's a cooperative game where you play as a group of spirits on a an island being invaded by colonial baddies so like uh some of the different bad guys are you know just various colonial forces that have existed throughout history so like uh one of the enemies is great britain one of them is like the prussian empire uh things like that and you are trying to help a force of island uh, people repel sort of the the onslaught of these of these uh, invaders. And the game, I think, actually plays. It feels to me like how 
an alternate way that magic could have been if it was going to be uh, a cooperative game against uh, an invading force. Um, like you have a hand of cards that are specific to your character, you know, so like one person is sort of an island is a, a water God. One person is like a nature God. And uh, you try to synergize them and find ways to, you know, repel the invading forces and I found it really fun. It is incredibly complicated. So the way that this game solves the problem of, you know, everyone has all the information, the best player can just play for everyone, is by being so complicated that it is hard to have a handle on what you can do, <laughs> let alone try to figure out what the other people at the table can do. Like, that just was, when, when we were playing, that was just well beyond something that I was even attempting to do. Um, and... Was it? Was that? I said, "Yikes!" Yeah. Uh, apparently, I actually I, I I know a friend of mine worked on one of the prototypes for it, and apparently, originally, one of the rules was that the players could not communicate in any language that they shared. So, like, you are allowed <laughs> to communicate with your teammates, but only through like gestures and you know, sort of pointing and things like that, which which was trying to preserve the sort of like you are a variety of different gods speaking to one another uh, or not really able to speak to one another, but still able to communicate a little bit, which I think is a really cool rule. But also they said like after a few play tests, they're like, yeah, this is wildly unnecessary. The game is so complicated that you don't need to do that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, m- myself and Matt Nass and my cousin Zach played it a bunch uh, and we had a really good time doing so. We played, a couple of different scenarios. The enemies, they did a really good job of uh, having various mechanics for them to make them feel pretty different. Like the the British forces are like all about building towns, and they like build up in one in in a few areas. Whereas the uh, the other like the Prussians are all about exploring and expanding quickly and getting all over the map. Um, so I was really impressed with that element of the game. And overall, I thought it was just really fun, and I'm definitely looking to play some more. Sounds like a, a fun one to try out. Uh, and at the longest game we have on the list here, the final one here, Benjamin, Agricola. What is this yeah. game? Agricola is my favorite board game of all time. Um, it is a resource management uh, worker placement game. Um, so there's like a, a, a set of, share of, of actions on the board. And you have like a limited number of workers, and every turn you put a worker on an action space, and you take that action, uh, and you do this until you're out of workers. And un- once everyone is out of workers, then you take them all back, and then the next round starts basically. Um, but the thing is, like, if you take an action, it means that no other player can place their worker there, um, which sort of seems like an innocuous way for players to interact. But I find that it actually is like a very strong way that they interact and it, it it means that you actually really have to pay attention to what your opponents are doing um so that you know like which actions are safe to take now or sorry which actions are safe to to take later it's like wheeling a card in booster draft right like um you know which cards are high pick you know which actions are high pick um and so and you you try to sort of save the lesser important ones until later um so I really like that about the game. I think that like core mechanic is is really nice, um, and it's been used by like tons of tons of games. Um, 
one other thing I really, really like about Agricola is that the game, um, it really rewards long-term planning uh, because you sort of um, want to set up this engine in the beginning of the game to make life easier later in the game. But, like, setting up an engine now means it's um, you're, like, sacrificing certain other actions uh, that are better at snowballing you later on in the game. So you sort of have to, like, choose between the snowballing and this um, this engine setting up, uh, and it sort of um, rewards you to figure out exactly how much engine you'll need to set up and exactly how much snowballing you'll, you'll have to do. Um, and just planning several turns in the future, like one, like one or two turns in the future can be really rewarding. But at the same time, you also... Um, the game also really rewards improvisation because of this competitive nature of the players. At some point, there will be a really powerful action that some someone didn't take because the other players like had to do had to do something else. So now there's this really good action in front of you that you could take like really late um, in the in the turn order. Uh, so you want to set yourself up so that you can actually do that. Like you, your long-term plan can't be so rigid and inflexible that you're unable to take advantage of like other players not being able to take high pick actions. Um, so it's got this sort of perfect mix of long-term planning and short-term improvisation that I find really compelling and really interesting. Um, and like that, I think is I've sort of I've thought about this a lot, and I've sort of distilled that as the main reason that I really love this game. Um, one other benefit to it is it has these uh, these like bonus cards that you start the game with um, that you can play and they like power up various action spaces in the game or they like you know whenever you take wood get an extra wood or something like that um, and because there's like a there's like a ton of them and because they're just randomly assigned at the beginning of the game um, each game's starting position is very very different um, so there are going to be a lot of games where you're like more incentivized to take, you know, these sorts of actions, and other games are incentivized to take other sorts of actions, and then like your opponents also have these cards, um, and so, but you don't know what they are, but like you know that will cause them to play in a different way than they played last game, which is going to also introduce another form of variance um, into the game, and so these these factors just all combine, and I really really love this game. All right, Do you- uh, yeah. Yeah, do you, um, so this is another game, was this like, this was the first worker placement game, right? Was it? I don't know if it was the very first one, but I think it is the most well-known um, worker so, placement game. So, like, unlike Puerto Rico, which has existed for a long time, and, like, there hasn't really been a copycat, like, this game has a lot of, sort of, spin-offs. Or yeah, it spawned versions. a genre of worker placement games. So, yeah. like, it's kind of rare that the first one just got everything right and all the other games are just like not improving on it like do you think like do you love it have you played these other games do you still like this one better or what's like what's the reason did they just get it perfect on the first try i've played a lot of worker placement games i don't think they got it perfect on the first try there are there are some things about agricola that aren't great um in particular there's like one action space that is like way too powerful and like when it appears is a little bit random and so the like the game changes a lot depending on if it's first or second. Like there's just a, a ton of competition for exactly that space, which is a little unhealthy. I actually played a game called Caverna recently for the first time. 
That's the game. That's the game specifically that I've heard is just an improved Agricola. Yeah. So Caverna is made by the same the same person or the same people, and um, it it changes a lot of things. I, I definitely a lot of it is better. Like it, it like it, it improves on that specific problem I just mentioned of having too much competition for one specific action. Um, and I I've only played it for the first time just recently, so I don't know for sure if it's like a strictly better game or anything. Um, but I do know that Agricola for me has like stood the test of time. Um, and it to this day it remains my go-to game when I get together with like my old play group from um, undergrad and I'm like, let's play this game. And we just all have so much fun and it's there are, all the games are really competitive. and whenever I win, I just I really do feel like I played better than my opponents and it's just it feels really good and um, I don't know. I definitely believe that other worker placement games do some stuff better than Agricola, but um, Agricola does so much right for me that I will always love it, I think. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, All right, that is about all that we have time for this week on the board game front. Thanks so much for coming on our show, John, and talking about all these different games. Uh, It's been really exciting. And listeners, you know, let us know uh, what you thought of these games, if you tried any of them, uh, and what you thought of them, which of them you liked, which of them you didn't like. Uh, if there's any big games that you're a fan of that we didn't talk about today, uh, talk to us about them on Twitter and stuff. That's uh, the kind of thing we like to talk about uh, all the time. Uh, but for now, Benjamin, why don't you end out our show with a story? So this story happens in Spain. Um, we are you know, in Spain to practice for the Pro Tour, and we're, we're looking for places to eat. And we find this Italian place that's, like, really great. Uh, and we go there, like, three days in a row or whatever. Um, but, you know, three days in a row at the same restaurant is, like, a lot. So people are, of course, kind of getting sick of it. So we're like, okay, okay, we'll, we'll find a different place. And we every time we went to the Italian place, we, like, passed by this burger place on the way. Um, so we're like, okay. And, and there's almost never – there's very rarely people in there. So we're like, okay, we're going to go to this place. Um, and also, for those of you who don't know, dinner in Spain is at, like, 10 o'clock or something – um, like restaurants open at like seven thirty or eight because of the siesta. Uh, so, you know, we, we always go to dinner, like pretty much exactly when the restaurants open because we're stupid Americans or whatever. And we get hungry at American hours. Um, so we're going to the burger place, uh, and we, we get there and there's just, it's like totally empty. There's like no one there. Um, and so we're like, okay, like, can we get a table for eight? And they're just like, no. Why not? Like the the restaurant's booked. Like it's all reserved, and there's just no one in the restaurant. <laughs> so we're just like, well, okay. I mean, we're pretty obviously like not Spanish. Like we're pretty obviously American. So we're like, okay, like do they hate us or like what's going on? So we're like, well, whatever. We'll just go to the Italian place again. So we go to the Italian place again. Then the next day, we basically the exact same thing happens. We come to the burger place intending to go, and again they say nobody. Like we can't go. There's no one in the restaurant. They say they're booked. We're like, what the heck is going on? There, in their defense, there are these little reserved signs on all of the tables. <laughs> so like, either they put them out in anticipation of us coming again, or they just actually get reservations for like 9 p.m. and then don't. And they're open at like 7:30, but then they just don't seat anyone until 9 p.m., which I guess is what happened. We'll never know because we never got to eat at the burger place. <laughs> it, it worked out really great for me because, like, the first three times you went to the Italian place, I wasn't there. 
so I got there and like I was like, okay, I want to try this Italian place everyone's raving about. And you're like, oh, I want to go for burgers. So I'm like, like, walk by, and yeah, the burger place is empty, and we just all end up at the Italian place anyway. And it was great. So I was, <laughs> I was pretty happy with uh, their policies. That is going to be the, the, okay. the Italian place had good replay value because yeah. they had uh, they had like. 10 pastas and like 10 sauces and you oh, could more than that. that more than they that they had way more than that john and yeah. i played the elimination game yeah we a long time yeah. <laughs> there was uh like 11 non-stuffed pastas and like 11 stuffed ones and like 17 sauces or something yeah so you can mix and match so you know we ate different dishes like every time we went that is going to be all for us this week though we will unite again next week for more allied strategies I guess it actually doesn't say what how random. Like, technically, if there's a 99% chance that Tristan has to write it and a 1% chance that Ben does, that is random, right? Well, yeah. I mean, my intention was uniform random, but I suppose we can do whatever. Also, it says nothing as to the quality of the sideboard guide. When you say random, like random, is it like random who writes it or random what matchup they get? <laughs> no, no, no. They request a matchup for us. Random That's which deck they get a sideboard guide for as well. We could just give them a random sideboard guide. <laughs> like one matchup? Yeah, just like... both sides of the matchup are randomized. Well, and the deck is entirely random cards. Mm-hmm. We hit random gatherer 60 times for the main deck, and then for the same same for the sideboard. <laughs> Alright, so you're, you're going to want to board out Elder Landworm here because it's not legal. <laughs> and if you draw it, your opponent might notice. Well, yeah, it would be bad if we hit like uh, any of the anti-cards, because... Because those are really problematic. Well, yeah. How would how would we start the permutations of like sideboarding out anti cards you won from your opponent in the previous game? Oh, oh that's goodness. true. That's too much to even handle. Yeah. I, yeah, I didn't even wow. consider that. I think that factor probably disqualifies this idea.